Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The practice of polygamy occupies a unique place in North American history and has had a profound effect on its legal and social development. In fact, plural marriage is the next frontier of North American marriage law and possibly the next civil rights battlefield. So say the editors of a new volume. It's called The Polygamy Question. It's out from Utah State University Press and explores the ways in which indigenous and immigrant polygamous practices have shaped the lives of individuals, communities, and the broader societies that have engaged with it. The book also considers how polygamy challenges our traditional notions of gender and marriage and how it might be effectively regulated to comport with contemporary notions of justice. And uh, just about any year... Um, we talk about polygamy in Utah. This year was no exception at the uh, Utah legislature. House Bill 281 was debated, which would recriminalize, in a sense, uh, polygamy cohabitation. That uh, bill passed the House and failed in the Senate. We'll talk about that as we go along. We turn to the, vo- the editors of this volume. Janet Benyon is professor of anthropology and sociology at Linden State College in Vermont. Uh, she is author of four previous books on polygamous societies, including her most recent Polygamy in Prime Time. Janet Benyon, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Tom. My pleasure. And we also are turning to Linda Fishbane Jaffe, who is Associate Director of the Hadassah Brandeis Institute at Brandeis University, where she directs the Project on Gender, Culture, Religion, and the Law. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? It's uh, Lisa Jaffe. Lisa Lisa Jaffe. Okay, great. Um, So uh, let me start with uh, Janet Benyon. This volume uh, focuses on North America, but I think people will be interested, at least briefly, in the variety of experience around the world with the polygamy, maybe introduce us to the other words we sometimes uh, are uh, uh, kind of uh, vague on, polygyny, polyandry. Okay, my pleasure. Um, so around the world, many of the, the cultures that are considered to be the non-Western world still favor and practice uh, polygamy. So polygamy is an umbrella term that is multiple spouses or multiple marriages. Polygyny is where you have one man with several women, and polyandry is where you have one woman with several men. And uh, then there's the new term polyamory. I've been attending quite a few conferences on polyamory, one in Berkeley and recently one in uh, Portugal. And this is a a kind of a, a new phase in North American trends of multiple spousal uh, affiliations that are loosely committed. Um, And interestingly, in in terms of polyandry, this last year in Kenya, they ratified uh, the first polyandrous marriage between one woman and two men. That had never happened before. Um, So that's, these are changing times in terms of alternative marriage. So is that, in terms of numbers, you'd, you'd have more polygyny than polyandry? Yes, but within any culture, there's obviously more uh, prevalence of monogamy, even where you favor or allow for polygamy, uh, just by virtue of the fact that there's just not enough women to go around. So in sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, uh, the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, areas where they allow for uh, polygamous marriage and often prefer it, it's still not the majority form within those areas. Hmm. But um, the history is that, yes, about 85% of the world's cultures at one point had uh, favored that form of marriage. Uh, Lisa Jaffe, as we look around the world, is it uh, is, is different forms of, of marriage and arrangements like this is usually tied to religion, the religious base, or is it, or are we coming to this polyamory? It sounds like it might not have religious foundation. You know, polyamory is is sort of a novel conception um, that is not necessarily um, uh, based upon legal marriage. Uh, Polyamorous relationships can be informal forms of cohabitation. They can be established through uh, marital contracts. It's it's quite a a novel innovation in um, in marital relationships, whereas um, polygamy. Uh, has been a traditional form of marriage. We see it in uh, the Bible, we, in uh, you know, the biblical forefathers who had um, multiple wives. Um, 
and it was permitted by Judaism and continues to be permitted uh, by Islamic law, which is the law of the land in many countries, and by African customary law, which is uh, the law of the land uh, in many sub-Saharan African countries. Uh, Janet Benyon, um, uh, bringing it uh, then to North America and taking it back to the history, if we, you know, you read the Bible, you you see uh, many societies around the world who have had, uh, at least had, and maybe have a form of polygamy. Uh, but in uh, North America, this was one of the twin relics of barbarism, as we well know in, here in Utah. It was uh, slavery and polygamy that was, were railed against in the 19th century. Well, it it didn't originate with Joseph Smith. In the North American context, there are several tribes um, that were considered to be gender egalitarian tribes, meaning that both men and women had uh, access to valued resources who practiced sororal polygyny which is where one man uh, marries two, two women who are sisters, by their consent. It was their choice. And so that was, uh, you know, pre-Columbian. And then we go into the times of uh, the early to mid-1800s, where Joseph Smith was engaging in his experiment in polygyny based on his visions or based on his desires, as you wish. And uh, then it came to fruition with Brigham Young, uh, uh, establishing it as a, uh, a full celestial form of marriage in the mid-1800s in Utah. And so, yeah, there's a history there, and whether it's the twin uh, forms of barbarism, you know, slavery and polygamy, that was something that was a campaign uh, that one of our authors, Sarah Song, speaks about in our volume. She's under the impression, and I agree with her, that this... Uh, anti-polygamy campaign was actually uh, a desire to thwart the efforts of female suffrage movement of the uh, huge class of women who were polygynous wives, including um, one of my great-great ancestors, Martha Hughes Cannon, in order to provide uh, a greater vote for for, um, people in Zion. So um, that's an interesting perspective that maybe it was all a campaign against women, not just against polygamy. Interesting. You you descend from Martha Hughes Cannon? Um, she is one of the wives of my great-great-grandfather, uh-huh. Angus M. Cannon. Right. I come from polygamy on three sides, Ezra Taft Benson, uh, Angus M. Cannon, and um, the Benyon clan. So, mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> and, uh, therefore, I know a little bit about polygamy. <laughs> along with many, many in Utah and, and, and the West. I want to bring this in right now. Uh, I want to talk about House Bill 281 as we go along, maybe later in the program. But this was an interesting quote. Um, a couple of years ago, um, a, a federal judge struck down a portion of Utah's law against bigamy. And then this was an attempt in this most recent Utah legislative session to recriminalize the, the cohabitation p- portion of this House Bill 281. And on, in the House, on the House floor, uh, c- a very contentious debate. This is Representative Earl Tanner, Republican from West Jordan. He made an amendment to drop bigamy from a misdemeanor to an infraction, uh, meaning it would carry no jail time. And this is what he said. He referenced his great-grandfather, who had five wives— when he asked the House to drop the offense to the lowest uh, possible um, level. And his, his quote, you can see what making it a felony has done. It's created these polygamous families, which are like organized crime. Why? Because we've made them all like criminals. But he's, he references his heritage, and and, uh, and many in Utah could, could say the same thing. Um, I would love to give space to Lisa to comment on this, but may I just suggest that I think it is uh, somewhat hypocritical for many uh, Utahns who come from pioneer stock to say, oh, this is this is a, this is a wretched, wretched program and we should abolish it, and they disenfranchise their own heritage. On the other hand, if there is abusive um, conditions, this should be criminalized. But the abuses themselves should be criminalized. We often suggest that um, when we hear the British Columbia verdict or some of these arguments uh, about the Utah cases, that... Um, we get the impression that all polygamy is painted uniformly within a, a negative brush, that it is suggested that all polygamy is abusive uniformly. And I disagree with this. I've been studying polygamy for 23 years. Wow. <laughs> and um, have lived at one time in my life with the All Red Group. 
as well as the LeBaron group. So I've seen with my own eyes the different forms of polygamy. And I don't think that criminalization is an effective way to deal with uh, these harms that may be associated with polygamy. Uh, but rather that we, I agree with um, Representative Tanner that, that we should actually decriminalize this and bring these ab- abuses, the cases of actual abuse, into the light, just as this, as there are abuses found in monogamy that are brought into the light, there should also be conditions where people are free to live their form of marriage, but if they're breaking the law vis-a-vis underage marriage or a, a, a abuse uh, in any way, such as mo- money laundering or holding of illegal arms, whatever they may be doing, those abuses and those crimes should be criminalized, not the marriage form itself. Uh, Lisa Jaffe, have you get a chance to, to comment on all of this? Um, and, and let you me. Know, s- yeah, go I'm, ahead. I'm intrigued by um, Mr. Tanner's uh, response, and and it's often uh, because polygamy in the cultures where it's practiced grows out of uh, a long tradition and is founded in religious faith and in uh, valued cultural norms. It can be a very complicated uh, struggle to try and address what I think are the real harms that can be associated with polygamy. As Janet point out, points out, not always, um, but there is a strong correlation and much of the evidence that was produced in the British Columbia uh, reference on polygamy uh, dealt with that. Um, but I came to the question of polygamy in, uh, also about 20 years ago, but not in the context of uh, Mormonism and not in the context of North America. I was working in South Africa at the end of apartheid, and they were working on the reform of African customary law after the end of apartheid. And they w- wanted to uh, redress the inequality that was present in the law that had not been addressed by colonial and apartheid governments. And that involved creating much more gender equality under the law, giving women equal rights to property, equal rights to make contracts, to be full citizens under the law. Uh, But one of the questions they faced was what to do about the question of polygamy. Polygamy is a traditional African customary law form of marriage. It had been banned by colonial governments, by the English, and and then later uh, by the apartheid government. And the question was if part of this overall platform to create greater gender equality for African women and also for Muslim women who might practice polygamy in America, in, in uh, South Africa, uh, whether polygamy ought to be recognized. Uh, the research that we did at the Center for Applied Legal Studies showed that many women who are involved in polygamous relationships were very unhappy in those relationships, uh, that it correlated with many social ills, and they did not want to see the future generations engaged with it. But on the other side, we had traditional leaders, including uh, President Jacob Zuma, who is now the president of South Africa, who has multiple wives, arguing that respect for South African tradition and throwing off the shackles of colonialism and apartheid meant restoring uh, the practice of polygamy. And that's indeed what South Africa did, but in a very sort of innovative way that tried at the same time to regulate it um, and provide some protections for women. Yeah, important to um, important to investigate what women are actually experiencing, isn't it? And and of course, you you two have uh, have both done that. Let's uh, take a break. Come back. I want to hear about that. Uh, Janet Bennion has uh, spent some uh, significant time with the the All Red Group. This is the Apostolic United Brethren, right? That's right. Correct. Um, and uh, and uh, Lisa Jaffe has studied uh, polygamy in in uh, South Africa. Uh, we'll uh, bring this forward to uh, today's debate as well, and, and we'll ask, uh, should the uh, practice of polygamy uh, be legalized, decriminalized? It's a question we'll throw out there. That's uh, been debated uh, over several years here in Utah. Of course, it's baked into, because of the history, into the Constitution of Utah, so that make it a, a little higher hurdle uh, here in Utah. But there have been... Movement. There has been movement, at least uh, on the decriminalization, at least a practice of, of not prosecuting the actual practice of uh, polygamy. More following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. The great baseball philosopher Yogi Berra said, you can learn a lot by looking around. If you want to improve work processes, look around. 
you might start with familiar territory like a kitchen. We watched kitchen work in our family and then made the following changes. We moved the knife drawer closer to the cutting board. We eliminated clutter in the refrigerator by cooking meals with no leftovers. We got a larger trash can so food preparation was not interrupted by trips to the trash. And we put dishes in the cupboard next to the table. Simple changes can reduce waste, increase efficiency, and improve quality even in personal space. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about plural marriage. Um, and the editors of this volume are talking about the polygamy question out from Utah State University Press. Say plural marriage is the next frontier of North American marriage law, possibly the next civil rights battlefield. And uh, we're asking the question as we go along, should polygamy be legalized or at least decriminalized? Um, and uh, many other questions, of course, to be answered. We're talking with the editors of this volume, Janet Benyon, Professor of Anthropology and Sociology at Linden State College in Vermont, and Lisa Jaffe, Associate Director of the Hadassah Brandeis Institute at Brandeis University. We're opening the phone lines now, 1-800-826-1495. What do you think? Uh, perhaps you have an experience in this. Uh, very likely you uh, may have uh, family history in this. Uh, 1-800-826-1495, toll-free number. You can also reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Let me start this segment again with Janet Benyon. Um, plural marriage, is it the next frontier of North American marriage law? Is it the next civil rights battlefield? Um, yes, I think so, and I've been, uh, uh, in the last few years, really focusing on this issue. The first part of my research, um, the first 15 to 18 years of my research, was dedicated to showing the full appraisal, of the full depiction of polygamous life, and that includes the uh, rather poor-functioning um, picture of the FLDS, both in Crested Butte, British Columbia, and also uh, on the border of Utah and Arizona um, with the, the FLDS group and Warren Jeffs. And that represents rather poor functioning because the women clearly don't have the same kind of autonomy and freedoms that you find in other what I would call well-functioning groups, such as the um, Apostolic United Brethren, the All Red Group, and the many independents that seem to be associated with that group. And one of the things that you'll note when you look closely at these well-functioning groups is that um, the former prophet Owen Allred had established certain rules governing marriage, and one was that you cannot marry unless you're above the age of 18. Um, the other groups don't have that. That's why you have all of the underage um, bride uh, situation among uh, the FLDS. The other thing that Owen Allred provided was that women get to marry up in the system. If they're unhappy for any reason, divorce or release is readily available, and they have uh, the choice of men who they can pick. Now, that doesn't mean that every marriage within the Allred group is splendid, but nor is it that way in monogamy. You know, so when, when I'm looking at these women and the variability of their expression of life, and their own version of feminism, I have to say that monogamy is not that great. And, you know, being an open-minded anthropologist, I have to look at all of the evidence. And what I fear is the, the criminal court cases that are being heard and the hearings on this matter, whether they're in Canada or the United States, is placing a, a disproportionate emphasis on the harms associated with polygamy and uh, truly a lack of evidence expressed in, in looking at well-functioning polygamy. And uh, again, the Allred Group, several other progressive independents, such as the Williams family, the Dargers, the Browns, the Josephs, represent progressive-style polygamy. Mm. And those should be um, acknowledged. 
Let me just follow up, uh, Janet Bunning. Uh, you say monog- monogamy, at least you pull back and study as an anthropologist. Monogamy is not that great. You're saying that because there, there's divorce, there's bad marriages in monogamy. Truly. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at per capita monogamy versus polygamy, there's many more abuses associated with monogamy. And even if you're looking at, you know, uh, problematic areas uh, such as uh, uh, child sexual abuse uh, conducted in the Catholic Church. I mean, if you look at the Boston Diocese alone, they have more cases of abuse than all of the Mormon fundamentalist polygamous cases combined. So, I mean, we really, you know, and that's supposed to be a very, um, you know, proper venue of, of life. We have a mainstream Catholics, we have mainstream um, Protestants who are claiming to be living in a monogamous uh, democratic uh, scenario, and they're committing atrocities. So, you know, we, we really like to point our fingers at these rather unpopular groups, and I admit, polygamy is not for me or my daughters. I would never uh, adopt that form. I do think that there is an association with patriarchy, um, but I also recognize that so is mo- monogamy. Monogamy is associated with patriarchy. If you don't understand that relationship, just read The Feminine Mystique. By Betty Friedan, hmm. she points it out beautifully. Uh, Lisa Jaffe, what do what you think on this? Is there uh, so what Janet Benny is saying is that you know these problems are not inherent in in polygamy. It's it's just that some groups um, are are you know tending toward abuses. FLDS be one one prime prime example. Well, I think that does help to shape how courts in different jurisdictions have responded to recent cases about the validity of laws against polygamy. You mentioned the Brown versus Buman case that uh, struck down the prohibition on polygamy, and that was in the context of Utah and in the context of uh, looking at relationships that could be quite egalitarian and certainly did involve um, adults making consensual decisions to enter into those relationships. The Canadian case that I referred to, uh, the British Columbia reference on uh, the provision of the criminal code that makes polygamy a crime in Canada, was dealing with a very different uh, community and a very different set of challenges. It grew out of uh, the FLDS community in bountiful British Columbia, in which uh, Winston Blackmore Uh, has been accused of marrying 24 women since 1990, Um, and they were particularly concerned about the movement of girls over the border uh, between Canada and the U.S., where they were being entered into spiritual marriages in Texas or Arizona and then being brought back into Canada. So the response that the Canadian courts have made and the Canadian legislature has made are in part because the practice of polygamy that they've been seeing and responding to um, is very particular and uh, involves clear cases of uh, abuse of children, of statutory rape, of incest, of child sexual abuse. I want to, uh, as, as you mentioned Canada, Lisa Jaffe, uh, just bring this in parenthetically. I noticed in one of the uh, articles in the book, um, it talked about Canada, Canada's immigration law. And polygamy. Mm-hmm. Some groups uh, come in practicing polygamy, but the, the Canada, once you immigrate, does, does not allow it. Is that the case? Well, the Canadian approach to polygamy has really been shaped by concerns about immigration and initially uh, shaped by concerns about immigration by Mormons from Utah. Uh, There was no prohibition on polygamy in Canada until the late 19th century, and it came about because uh, Utah criminalized polygamy, and inquiries were made with the Canadian government as to whether the polygamous community could move to Canada. And they were refused, and Canada went further and introduced criminal prohibitions, uh, saying that polygamy was a criminal offense punishable by up to five years in prison. And that remains part of the criminal code of Canada. Uh, The British Columbia case was a reference by the British Columbia government to the British Columbia Supreme Court, asking them if that law, which was on the books, was still good law, given that Canada now has a human rights charter and people have freedom of religion. So the court was asked to inquire into whether it was permissible under the Canadian Constitution uh, to violate freedom of religion in that way by prohibiting polygamy. And the court ultimately concluded that uh, well, 
fellow Mormons who practice polygamy uh, in these communities uh, might see their freedom of religion uh, impinged upon, it was justified in order to provide protections to women and children in the community. Um, And subsequent to that, in 2015, Canada amended its immigration legislation to make it a crime to move children um, under the age of uh, 16 across borders for purposes of marriage um, and to facilitate or celebrate those marriages. Mm. Uh, If you just joined us, we're talking about uh, plural marriage. And uh, the editors are saying this is the next frontier of North American marriage law, possibly the next civil rights battlefield. The book is called The Polygamy Question. It's out from Utah State University Press. And we're talking with the editors, uh, Janet Benyon, who is professor of anthropology and sociology at Linden State College in Vermont, and Lisa Jaffe, who is the associate director of the Hadassah Brandeis Institute at Brandeis University, where she directs the project on gender, culture, religion, and the law. You can join us here in the conversation at one 800 826 1-800-826-1495 or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com upraxcess at gmail.com one question that we're throwing out there is uh, should polygamy be uh, decriminalized should it be made legal um, 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at uh, gmail.com uh, Jenna Benyon, it's as we go along here it's it's Interesting to me that the frame through which you look at this issue is important, isn't it? And I wonder what, what you would emphasize. Uh, religious freedoms, um, patriarchy, women's rights? Um, all of the above. I think um, polygamy is our next uh, marital rights frontier because in this you know, liberal democratic state, we promise to give you know, um, equal rights for uh, people who may have differing um, sexual orientations, differing religions. And so this poly question is the next step in our civil rights paradigm. The First Amendment and due clause process of the um, 14th Amendment allows us to define the shape and contours of our sexuality, of our marriage, um, as freely as we see fit, as long as there's no harm. Now, the question that um, Lisa has raised and uh, several of our authors in this volume have raised is what about the harms to women and children? So I would suggest that, um, again, cr- criminalization is not the answer. When polygamy is criminalized, um, the women and children who are associated with these poor functioning groups um, are less likely to report their problems, less likely to um, bring the abuses into the light because they're afraid of prosecution. They're afraid of jeopardizing their whole family because it's illegal. It's illegality that is the culprit. If there is, uh, at the very least, decriminalization, these women and children will know that they have recourse and resources to ask for help to bring these problems into the light. Um, it's, it's ironic because the prohibition, which you know is designed to actually protect these women, that's what the British Columbia verdict said they want to protect these women and children but that prohibition is in fact putting these women and children in greater harm uh, because it's alienating them from the protections of the law so my suggestion is to really carefully look as i have done in what are the factors contributing to poor functioning polygamy that's what we're talking about the abusive kind not the progressive kind but the abusive kind and what you find is illegality is one of the key variables that is associated with poor functioning. Um, and associated with that is um, isolative environments, uh, male supremacist control. Um, and, you know, so we're not going to stop the pr- practice of polygamy, but what we can do is through, at the very least, decriminalization, we can begin to regulate the form of marriage just as they're doing in South Africa and begin to bring these abuses into the light so that the abuses themselves can be prosecuted, not the form of marriage. I want to follow up on uh, South Africa with Lisa Jaffe. We have a caller. Um, our, our caller joins us now. Uh, glad you called. Go ahead uh, with your comment or question. Hi. Um, my comment is uh, I come from polygamous stock. Uh, I, my grandmother's grandmother uh, particularly was expressive, uh, and I had family stories come down on both sides of the 
family, indicating that, uh, at least in my family, polygamy was uh, thought of as being inherently um, abusive and that women were basically subjugated, um, didn't have much choice in the matter, uh, and that it wrecked families. That's my the stories through my family. Thank you. Thank you for that call. I wonder, uh, Janet or Lisa, do you want to comment on that? Uh, I mean, I, I would like to comment on the, the question of, of, of what to do about that. Um, so I agree with Janet and the point that she makes about um, not criminalizing it because that pushes uh, people into darkness, pushes people away from the remedies that they might have for the kind of abuses that the caller is discussing. Um, but the question is, if we are to not criminalize it, if we're going to regulate it, how do we regulate it in a way that best facilitates uh, women's autonomy and women's equality? Um, do we regulate it in a way that gives women some choices in their communities? We need to acknowledge that women may, in fact, choose those relationships, and Janet's work has wonderfully explored uh, why not only women who are born into polygamy, but women may choose polygamy because it meets needs that they have, and some people experience experience great meaning uh, entering into a society in which they have a defined role and they have the satisfactions of performing the functions of that role. But we also need to provide tools and underpinnings and education so that if women want to make a different choice um, or if they want to be empowered to make changes in their community to make it a more egalitarian one, um, that we provide that kind of structure. So the way we regulate polygamy is really key to doing that. Uh, and and so, um, Janet Bunny, you were talking earlier, and, and I've talked with, uh, say, it, Attorney General Mark Shirley, former Attorney General in, in Utah. Mm, right, uh, he, right. he made a push, um, and joined by many other state officials, that uh, we want to bring uh, people out of the shadows so that we can treat the abuses. And we're not necessarily, we're not, in fact, they made the promise, we're not going to prosecute polygamy per se. Right. Um, yes, and I, I, I think that is a, a very favorable step. Um, and will, uh, and, you know, inspire people to come out of the woodwork, out of these remote areas, knowing that they will not be put in jail. I think it was very destructive during the 2002 Olympics um, to have uh, pell-mell polygamists uh, arrested during that time, and I think uh, the homeless were swept up to make the streets look good. You know, that, that was, a, a, I think, very injurious to this process because polygamists are afraid intrinsically afraid of the government. And so that kind of thing is just going to push them further and further away. But if there is some kind of decriminalization and, and regulation, there could be some support for women, uh, not only uh, government-sponsored shelters and securities, but in the process of, of contracting marriages themselves, you can have options. You might choose a multi-party uh, law, legal system where each party is aware of their rights and privileges, uh, including inheritance, including uh, rights to exit uh, safely, you know, and so those can be protected by law if it's not illegal. If the form of marriage itself is illegal, then those protections become, you know, invisible, they non-existent. Um, about the caller, may I just suggest that the caller uh, open up uh, his, his kind of thinking to the possibility that um, there are other forms of polygamy out there. For example, you know, um, some of the viewers or listeners may have seen Brady Williams' form of marriage. Now, all of the five wives that Brady has married, um, and he's associated with the, um, was associated with the Allred group, all of those five wives have entered into that union of their own volition, uh, being consenting adults. And they describe that union as being very favorable for them because they share uh, a female network, they share tasks, they're able to fully realize their career goals because they know that their sister wives are helping them take care of their children. And then there's a new form, too. In our volume, Deborah Majid has been writing about African-American Muslim women who are choosing of their own volition as adults to enter into polygamy, polygyny because they're trying to find good men in an arena uh, where there's a, a dearth of good men. And so they are voluntarily wanting this form of marriage, women seeking this for themselves. Hmm. That cannot be ignored. Uh, 
Let me uh, let me start with. I want to hear from both of you. Let me start with Lisa Jaffe on this. Uh, and and I was thinking a, a different angle based on on our caller. Um, you know, stipulating what Janet Benyon just said, but. Uh, one of the things we could take from the the caller's question is if we take that his history uh, to be you know back in the day back when it was legal in Utah and and in fact you know practiced very openly that you know there can there can be abusive situations in in that type of polygamous situation just as there is abuse in monogamy as well. Right. I mean, I think that in, in trying to describe what an effective mode of regulation would be, we need to be very specific. We need to look at the practices in the community as it exists now. And the South African example can be a useful one. So the research that we did um, identified two key things that were objections that women who were in polygamy uh, had. One was that often they didn't know that they were involved in a polygamous relationship. There might be one wife living in a rural area and one wife living in the city, and the husband would migrate for purposes of work, and she wouldn't find out, the rural wife, the senior wife, wouldn't find out that she was in a polygamous marriage until the husband passed away and somebody else or several other wives showed up to make claims on um, the inheritance. Um, so w- one thing that was really important to people was to be able to consent, to be informed and consent and, and to have the opportunity to refuse to enter into a polygamous marriage. And the other objection that women had to polygamy was that it dissipated the assets that were in the family, that bringing in another wife meant that the husband might be favoring the new wife and would use the family's resources to uh, provide things for her and her children and the children of the first wife might go without food or go without clothes or go without school fees. Uh, So in designing an appropriate kind of regulation what the South African Law Reform Commission recommended and what was ultimately implemented by the state was uh, the Recognition of Customary Marriages Act, which said if a man wants to take a second wife, he has to register that intention with uh, the authorities and has to get written consent from the first wife that she's agreeing to this, and she can either refuse her consent and seek a divorce at that point, or she can agree to that. Um, And then they set up how they're going to share assets with this new spouse coming into the marriage. Uh, They can say, you know, let's split the assets we have now so the first wife has enough assets to provide for her children. And if he wants to share his half of the assets with a new wife, he's welcome to do that. But that was an attempt to have a very tailored response to the specific harms that were identified with polygamy as it was practiced in that community. Jenna Benny, what, what do you think? We'll wrap up this part of the conversation, go to a break. But uh, this this idea of, yeah. uh, you know, there are abuses, I guess, in any types of societies or, or forms of, of, of marriage. It's just that uh, polygamy is not practiced by a majority of the people. And so it, it's, you know, the, the you might call it the reputation of polygamy is, is on the line with each individual instance. Right, right. I, I, I would suggest that we don't need to... <laughs> Um, fear that it's going to interrupt our, our process of, of de- democracy and change our whole way of life in the American monogamous condition. This is what um, one of our authors, um, Mara Strasberg, is suggesting, that it's going to threaten democracy, but it's practiced by very, very few people, really, really uh, small numbers of people. And of those people, it's, it's only practiced well by, uh, you know, a portion of that. And I, I would like to um, continue on with Lisa's ideas about how we can make it more functional. Um, she's recommending the South African model, I agree. We also have um, Al Kranawi's research. He's um, someone who's involved with us in our uh, conference where we, we got all together on this project. And he suggested through his observations of both uh, uh, Jewish and Muslim uh, polygyny, in the Middle East, he suggested that where you find uh, a healthy female network, where you find that wives are treated equally financially and socially, and where you have the absence of uh, elite polygyny or male supremacy, you will find well-functioning polygamy. So is there some way that we could actually ensure that and look at these forms of marriage on case-by-case basis, noting that oftentimes there are really well-functioning polygamist examples that we just don't see because they're not in the news. Hmm. Um, they need to be acknowledged as well. 
Let's take another break. When we come back, our final segment, uh, we're talking about uh, a new book out from Utah State University Press. It's called The Polygamy Question. Uh, many uh, interesting articles. And we're talking with the editors, Janet Benyon and Lisa Jaffe. You're welcome to join the conversation. We have about 10 minutes left at 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Perhaps you'd like to tell us your experience, your family's experience. So we're asking this question, should uh, polygamy be legalized or at least decriminalized? That's an ongoing debate in Utah um, for obvious reasons. 1-800-826-1495 or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, proudly celebrating its 40th anniversary, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Details at utahhumanities.org. Armenian composer Arno Babajanyan wrote this folksy trio. Violinist Ani Kavafian played this with Babajanyan and came away with some secrets. He used to sweat an awful lot because he was putting so much energy into everything he did. Ani Kavafian and music by Babajanyan on the next performance today from APM. Join us tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about the very interesting uh, topic of uh, polygamy. Plural marriage is the next frontier of North American marriage law, possibly the next civil rights battlefield. So say the editors of an interesting new volume out from Utah State University Press called The Polygamy Question. We're talking with Lisa Jaffe, who's Associate Director of the Hadassah Brandeis Institute of Brandeis University, and Janet Benyon, Professor of Anthropology and Sociology at Linden State College uh, in Vermont. Uh, we uh, have another 10 minutes left in this conversation. You're welcome to join it. 1-800-826-1495 is the toll-free number, or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com. I believe we have another uh, caller on the line. Uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, yes, my name is Hondo Solomon. I am the author of a small volume called The Polygamous Papers, an introduction to polygamous culture and its principles, pitfalls, and ethics. Uh, I have a sequel debuting next year will be a 400-page volume called Family Crest, Polygyny as Economic Warfare. Um, I grew up in polygamy uh, in the state of Michigan, and I'm Native American and Jewish. And uh, when I look back in both of my cultures, we have a, a deep and long history of uh, culturally-based polygyny. And I've been listening to the program uh, for about 20 minutes, and I appreciate the, the host and the, um, the, the guests on the show. I will be buying your works. Um, and uh, I just wanted to say that uh, polygyny has always been, uh, first, a cultural institution, and it's, it's always been practiced uh, primarily with success uh, with and without uh, civic law involved. Uh, as, as, the, as the guests have mentioned, uh, South Africa, of course, uh, they actually have three levels of uh, cultural polygyny there. Uh, one is the, the civic law, uh, then there's tribal law, and then uh, Muslims are also allowed to practice under their religion as well. Um, I, I've been listening in. Uh, it's been a good show. Uh, so, uh, one more thing: uh, the the practice of polygyny is actually more common in the United States, more among non-Muslims and non-Mormons than Mormons and Muslims. Um, I've actually traveled all over the U.S. I've lived with polygynous families, done ethnographic research, and I have forty thousand hours of primary research under my belt as well. And I, I find polygyny is actually very common. I'm talking about patriarchal polygyny. Everyone is involved. Everyone knows. Uh, children are safe and sound. But, uh, you know, there there's always been cultural checks and balances on the childhood abuses. These are things which are very rare um, outside Mormon circles. Uh, in fact, uh, here and abroad. I've actually studied it in non-American cultures as well. And... There, there's actually death involved when someone abuses a child uh, when you're looking at uh, polygynous families outside the Anglosphere. They punish those uh, men and or women who abuse children. I mean, that, the community will actually punish them. So most cases they're killed because children, children are seen as such a high-value resource along with elders that those are two groups that you never do harm to. 
So I just want to say that, and then uh, I'll, I'll listen in. Thanks for letting me call in. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Hannah. Very, very interesting. Appreciate your call. Uh, let me uh, let me go for response to Lisa Jaffe first. Well, I thought I wanted to respond to the issue of uh, where polygamy fits into uh, the Jewish religion. Um, so polygamy was obviously mentioned in um, the Bible, but it was banned for Ashkenazi Jews, or Jews of Europe, um, in the 11th century. Um, it was not banned for Sephardi Jews, Jews living in North Africa, um, but it was vanishingly rare, um, generally in marriage contracts, the ketubah that was signed at the time a marriage was created, a clause would be written in saying, this wife is going to be your only wife, and <laughs> polygamy is excluded for this relationship. Um, so it was very rare. It was only permissible into the 20th century in the Yemeni community, um, and it was still practiced up until the creation of the State of Israel, uh, with the ingathering of uh, Jews from around the world. Uh, the rabbinate in Israel created um, a new ruling in 1950 that uh, banned polygamy for all Jews, and that's reflected in the law of the State of Israel as well. So it's part of the heritage, but is not really part of the, the practice of contemporary Jews. Uh, let me get a response from Janet Benyon, then we have another caller, uh, Janet Benyon. Okay, well, I appreciate Mr. Solomon's remarks, and I'm thinking about an early pilot study that I did of a uh, Hispanic uh, community, which also practiced informal polygyny, where um, uh, a male would be coming across the border to do seasonal work, would meet um, a woman in Utah Valley, where I was conducting my research, and she would be his second wife, and they would establish a poco uh, casa. And back home in um, Chihuahua or uh, wherever the, the individual was from, he would have his grande casa, his first wife. And this was practiced with some regularity, according to some of my subjects. So I agree that um, polygyny, one man, s several women, is practiced uh, rather widespread, whether or not it's in the form of legalized marriage or not. Um, our other caller is uh, Honda, who's called back in. I got your name wrong, Honda. It's Hondo? Uh, no, I, actually, the original pronunciation is Hondo. Most people Hondu. pronounce Hondo. You're correct, sir. Okay, all right. Uh, go ahead with your follow-up. Yes, sir. I just wanted to respond to the uh, the, the uh, remark about uh, regarding Judaism. We have to remember that we have more Jews outside Ashkenazi Judaism and outside the current political Judaism practice in Israel than we do those who are actually a widespread and practicing Ashkenazi Judaism. In fact, it's still common among uh, Sephardi Jews. I have found it among them, I, and I've actually spoken with these people. I mean, I'm, I'm on the phone uh, with people from around the world. I, I get emails, and in most of these cases, they are not maligned and subjugated to persecution by those surrounding them. So it's still common among, uh, you know, it's practiced among Yemenite Jews, uh, Bene Israel in India, uh, even the Taifang Jews in the East, uh, you have, <clears throat> excuse me, you also have uh, the Ethiopic Hebrews who practice polygyny. Uh, of course, you have some Hebrews and Jews who practice it right here. In fact, I know some Ashkenazi Jews in New York who practice it, and they receive mostly, mostly good reports about their experience without persecution. Usually it's from their, their local synagogue. Outside that, the, the practice is actually uh, not... Uh, you know, they, they're not getting persecuted. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I don't want to discount what the guest is saying, but I want to give a wider range of looks to who is practicing polygyny. In fact, regarding Rabbi Gershom's ban, that was only for uh, particular uh, European Jews, not like, you know, from the Euro Mountains in Russia all the way over to, say, Wales. There was a, an email sent, and all Jews started doing it. No, that's not the case. In fact, in fact he wrote the letter, and it was for uh, the Jews in France. Since that period uh, is that if, if you look at if you look at the rest of Europe, uh, many of the uh, Jews there still practice it, uh, and everyone does not follow Ashkenazi Judaism, nor do they follow Rabbi Gershom. In fact, in my tradition, my tradition comes out of Africa and the Middle East. Hondu, uh, Hondu, we have never acknowledged, uh, Hondu, uh, we're, uh, acknowledged Rabbi Gershom. We're uh, we're running out of time, so uh, so we'll have to we'll have to move move on. But thank you uh, so much. Uh, and if you would, if you'd leave your contact information with our uh, with our producer, we we can get back in touch with you in, in case our guests want to as well. Uh, so, Lisa, I think you wanted to jump in there. 
I just wanted to say, um, you know, those, those are interesting anecdotes, but the position of normative Judaism throughout the world since the 11th century uh, has been that uh, polygamy is, is not to be practiced, and it's, it's not a valid marriage under Jewish law. And uh, I want to uh, conclude here. We we just have uh, we just have uh, just a couple of minutes. So I want to give uh, Janet Benny first, and then Lisa Jaffe uh, some uh, closing uh, comments here. What uh, would you say at the end of the conversation, Janet Benny? Thank you, Tom. I would just suggest that we recognize, acknowledge that there are many faces of polygamy, including polyandry. And so, if we're decriminalizing uh, the entirety of uh, alternative sexual and marriage forms. It will allow for many of these uh, forms of marriage to uh, be defined and acknowledged without fear of arrest. I think that is a favorable choice in a, a liberal democratic state. And I, I, I would suggest that just because something is unpopular, such as you know polygyny as it is associated with patriarchy, um, that doesn't mean that we should uh, you know discount it. We should. Uh, support these unpopular forms with the same vigor as we do the popular ones or the ones we agree with, as long as the harms are separated from that and persecuted. And so that when we see these these unpopular forms, let us not be biased by it, but actually look at the, the evidence and acknowledge the, the abundance of well-functioning uh, ethnographic stories and cases, as well as those that are abusive. Uh, Lisa uh, Jaffe, uh, what would you say? We have about a minute left. I'd just say that I, I think I, I agree with Janet that uh, criminalization is not the way to go, but I want to reiterate that the way we regulate polygamy is important, but clearly we have to have strong criminal prohibitions on polygamous relationships involving children and involving the abuse of children. But even with the regulation of relationships involving adults, we need to do it in a way that preserves the ability for them to change those communities, to change those relationships, uh, to exit from them, and to exert power within them. And that's a, a careful calculation we need to make. We've been talking with Lisa Jaffe, who's Associate Director of the Hadassah Brandeis Institute of Brandeis University, where she directs the Project on Gender, Culture, Religion, and the Law. Thank you so much. Thank you. Janet Benyon is Professor of Anthropology and Sociology at Linden State College in Vermont. She's author of four previous books on polygamy societies, including Polygamy in Prime Time. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And uh, Janet Benyon and Lisa Jaffe are editors of a new volume out from Utah State University Press called The Polygamy Question. Keep the conversation going at upr.org, where you can hear this program again, upr.org, or you could email us to upraccess at gmail.com. Tomorrow we have our news roundup show from the Salt Lake Tribune, Behind the Headlines. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening today. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A listener-supported service of Utah State University, you are listening to Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible by our members, and support for Utah StoryCorps Project is made possible by our members and Uinta Basin Healthcare in Roosevelt. Founded in 1944, celebrating over 70 years of service, offering hospital, clinic, and pharmacy services. Details at ubh.org. You are listening to Utah Public Radio. White cops. Black I'm Jeremy Hobson. Grammy-winning singer and guitarist Ben Harper takes on police and race on his new album. There is a specific problem in a specific area, especially in America when it comes to race relations. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio.